you'll remain standing, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6. And for context, I'll be reading starting in verse 1. Jesus speaking, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as we have looked at the sermon preached by Jesus, one of the main things I have noticed is that there is a direct correlation between what man believes and how a man lives. There's what we see in each other, and then there's what God sees. There are many who hear the gospel. There are many who would say, well, yes, I know the gospel. And there are many who profess the truth of God's word, but there are not so many who live it. And with this discourse, Jesus expounds on the true and full meaning of the law and conveys to his audience their inability to fulfill the demands of it. He lays out the case that there is more to the law of God than the words it expresses. It demands more than surface accomplishment. Jesus comes along and says, it's not just the outward appearance or what people believe about you, it's what's in your heart. It's what motivates your behavior. It's what and who you are when no one else is looking. It's the character of the inner man. And he begins with the Beatitudes. Who, who are the blessed? The poor in the spirit. The meek. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who thirst for righteousness and so on. If you desire to be a disciple of Christ, you desire a good thing. But it's also true, it's a hard thing. And it's a hard thing because we are natural born sinners desiring everything this world has to offer us. But Jesus goes on to explain that God's people are like salt. They are to season life on earth with the glory of heaven, not the glory of man. They are to be a light that shines God's light on the darkness of this world. As God's people, we are to be shining examples of the holiness of God. As we live a life of holiness we will stand out. And this is not something we do just for show or so that we can look at me and say how great I am. This is what the scribes and Pharisees did and that's why Jesus calls them out in chapter 5 
Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That word exceed there is to go above or surpass. Jesus says our righteousness needs to go beyond and above what the scribes and Pharisees had. And what righteousness did they possess? Self-righteousness. They were all about the show. All about looking good in front of people. Not taking into consideration the fact that their life was an open book to Yahweh. And we are not to be like them. Instead, we bow our knee to the Father and say, by your grace, Lord, by your mercy, I live my life so that others might see a glimpse of your majesty. And I'm sure as he was saying these words that there was a little shock in the audience over that statement, that their righteousness must be exceeding to that of the religious leaders. After all, these leaders were, were those that they were taught to look up to. So there's this, there's this call by Jesus to perfection that had to, that had to shake those in attendance. But Jesus doubles down on it by giving six, you have heard it said, but I say statements. And each one of these arguments presented by Jesus contrasts the knowledge of the law and a life lived by the glory of God. And such were some of us here, right? On one hand, they were living under the law and trying to live the best they could, but by doing so became really good at presenting themselves outwardly as followers of the law of God. And it's really easy sometimes to portray ourselves as something we're not, especially when it comes to spiritual disciplines. But God sees the heart. He sees us when no one else does. And there were people in this, hearing the this sermon of Jesus, just like us sitting here today, that would say, well, I've never literally killed anyone. I've never literally committed adultery. I don't make promises I don't keep very much I live just like Jesus lived right I just love everybody and Jesus comes along and I thought about it this week it, it was kind of like putting a Mentos in a Coke right it just exploded the religious leaders arguments the religious elites it says you have heard it said but I say it points to the fact that it's deeper than surface religion and so we come to chapter 6, 1 through 2, and he, he gives this warning about practicing your righteousness before other people. He says, don't, don't sound trumpets. Don't, when you give, don't be like the hypocrites in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. They have received their reward. Paul Washer says this about rewards. God is gracious. He'll give us exactly what we want. If we want the praise of men and to practice our religion so that everyone can see how great a person we are, the scariest thing a person like that can get is God's being gracious and giving us what we want. No reward from the Father. Many re rewards from man. You can be praised by others wherever you go and still when you die, you can go straight to hell. That's a heavy thing to say people sitting in the pew this morning and I'm one of you <laughs> the 
We need to be mindful of what God is looking for in His people. He's looking for men and women, old and youth, that have their hearts and minds set on Him. And there is no better tell of a person's heart than in his prayer life. Leonard Ravenhill famously said that no man is greater than his prayer life. He said, let me spend five minutes in prayer with him and I'll tell you what kind of man he is. So we come to our text this morning, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This morning as we look at what Jesus says about prayer, I want us to look at three things. One is how not to pray. Then I want to look at how to pray. And what I mean by how to pray and not to pray, I mean by what is our motivation for our prayers. And then when to pray. When to pray. So first, I want to say something about what prayer is. Prayer is something that a natural man will not do because he is self-sufficient. And therefore, he has no need to ask anything of anyone let alone pray. But when a person is born again, they understand their depraved state, that they are totally dependent on their Creator, and they are driven to pray by the Holy Spirit. And I've also learned over the years that prayer is the vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to conform us more to the image of Christ. Oswald Chambers says this, it is not so true that prayer changes things as that prayer changes me and I change things. God has so constituted things that prayer on the basis of redemption alters the way in which a man looks at things. Prayer is not a question of altering things externally, but of working wonders in a man's disposition. And so when Jesus was talking about prayer, he's talking, this is the issue that he was addressing. And these two things that Jesus warns of here in verse 5 and verse 7, praying in public to show how great an orator you are. And using volumes of words in the process. Now there is a time and a place for public prayer. Jesus is not saying no public prayer. He himself prayed in public. He's also not saying that praying for a long period of time is wrong. Because we know that Christ would spend hours in prayer. But as we pray, the attention should always be on the one being prayed to, not the one praying. Jesus said, don't be like them. They're hypocrites. J.C. Ryle said, if you will take care of your prayers, nothing shall go very wrong with your soul. It's very true. Because again, we have to be honest with ourselves about our motivation. What's driving us to prayer? Is to be seen by others? Or are we driven to prayer because we are in desperate need of Christ? And the scriptures are full of prayers of the saints through the ages. 
starting way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, uh, it talks about Enosh, when Enosh was born. It says, people began to call upon the name of, the, of Yahweh. And from there you have Abraham pleading with God against Sodom, to Moses in the wilderness, to Daniel in exile, and there are many more examples. Prayer does not equip us for some greater works. Prayer is the greater work. I wish I'd have thought of that, but that's Oswald Chambers as well. But it's so true. Prayer is more than just rattling off empty words or citing incantations. This is what the Roman and other religions did at the time of Christ's earthly ministers, ministry. And, and, and just like the, their Old Testament fathers, the Jewish leaders probably picked up on some of these practices and tried to use them in their worship of Yahweh. And Jesus says they have their reward. In Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, Jesus talks about these scribes. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the best places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers that they will receive, they will receive the greater condemnation. See, those religious leaders cared more about an outward appearance of godliness and how they prayed. And you don't have to look very hard at the church today to see this practice still raging on. So-called religious leaders blaspheming Yahweh by looking up and rattling off long-winded invocations that put more emphasis on themselves than the one to whom they're praying. Jesus says they have their rewards. Thomas Watson, speaking of those who practice false godliness, the man who is a pretender to saintship, but whose heart tells him he has nothing but the name, carries Christ in his Bible, but not in his heart. That's a very scary place to be. And I wonder as I look out today if anybody, if this is registering with anybody. Jesus calls them hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. If you look at the news today, it's quite a common practice today to see people on street corners or in some cases in the middle of the street to protest this or that. Some of them gluing themselves to the ground, getting in front of people to bring attention to themselves and these people that Christ is talking about here in, in chapter 6 verse 5 where they stand in the synagogue and on the street corners they're the same as these protesters we see they're not looking to point people to other to Christ they're praying out loud so they everyone could hear them and see how spiritual they were they had no desire to point people to Yahweh only to themselves. And they would also heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. A show of piety and vocabulary might impress some around you. But it has no effect on God. Instead, Jesus teaches what prayer should look like. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father 
who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Proper attitude and prayer does not drive us to the street corner. It drives us alone in a room where it's pouring out your heart to God. It's not just praying that God would change our circumstances, though we need to do that. But it's also God, that God would change our hearts, that we would, He would so conform us to His Son that our problems are seen in comparison to His kingdom. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we get glimpses of, of this, when we're alone with God, it changes our mind, it changes our heart to take our mind and, and eyes off of us and place it on the kingdom of God. And this kind of realization doesn't come from standing on the corner. It comes from getting on your knees alone in the room and like Jacob say, I will not let you go until you change my heart. Until I know your will in this situation. Jesus says it's in the secret place where you shut everything off and cry out to God. R.C. Sproul says, Prayer is the secret to holiness. It is central and crucial in the life of the Christian. I wonder if prayer is important to you this morning. It's central and crucial in the life of the Christian. And what greater example of this do we have? have than Jesus himself. I mean, his life began with prayer. Remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? A man of God waiting for the consolation of God in Israel through the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, verse 28, he says, Look, he took him up, Jesus, speaking of the baby Jesus, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And a few verses later, Luke tells of Anna, a prophetess, widow, 84 years old. And I thought about that this, this week, how we have been blessed in this church to have praying widows. It says in verse 37, she did not depart the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So his life began with praying people. And by the way, praying in public. Again, God is not against public prayer. And we also know that Jesus himself prayed. Matthew 14, 23 says after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35 says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
Luke 5, 15 through 16 says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he, withdrew, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In these days, in Luke 6, 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray all night. He continued in prayer to God. And of course, in John chapter 17, we find the high priestly prayer of Christ for his disciples. So we see Christ praying, alone praying, to the mountain, to a desolate place. In the morning praying, in the evening praying, all night praying. If prayer was important to Jesus, it must be a priority for us. As I've stated before, there are times for corporate prayer. We need to come together as believers and pray for one another. The Bible commands that as well. But our time in prayer together is affected by the time we spend alone, away from all the distractions. Why? Well, it doesn't do much good for a bunch of people who don't pray to come together and pray. And I love how Luther talks about this. Prayer without fervency is like hunting with a dead dog. And a prayer without preparation is like hawking with a blind falcon. He had a really good way with words. See, it's in these quiet moments alone with God that we can truly commune with the Father through Christ. And then when we come together, we are ready to for the fierce battles of the church. One writer said, prayer is like the oxygen for the Christian. It's how we breathe. And so as we talk about how not to pray and how to pray, That leads me to my next point, when, when you pray. Verses 5, 6, and 7 start with when you pray. Now why would Jesus emphasize this idea of when you pray? Again, going back to the motivation of our heart. See, the heart is where we like to keep our treasure. Jesus says later on in, in chapter 6, where do you run in times of trouble? What are, Whatever you treasure in your heart. Many songs have been written about this idea of following your heart, but the Bible teaches us in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, in this passage, we see that Jesus has an expectation that God's people will pray he says when you pray not if you pray I don't know about you but I've grown up in the church and I've seen many many programs being written about how to pray you have to get up early before you go to bed before every meal during worship have prayer meetings all these are great listen as believers we just need to pray we don't need a reason to pray. We just need to pray. We don't need excuses not to pray. We just need to pray. Why? Because one, the Word of God commands us to pray. 
Number two, it's in our time of prayer that we are allowed through Christ to commune with our Heavenly Father. And when we pray, it is the most precious time we can have with our Creator. And by the way, He loves it when we come to Him in prayer. Number three, we need this time. We face battles every day. And I like how Paul paints the picture of this life. We are living like being in a spirit being on a spiritual battlefield. John Piper says, you do not know what prayer is for until you realize that this life is war. And this battle has many fronts. Anger, frustration, depression, anxiety, lust, on and on. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6 about the putting on the armor of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace on your feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says this. Now picture this. You have, you're a warrior for Christ. You're going out to battle. You've got all your protection on. And you've got your weapon. And Paul says this in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Listen, you may have put on all the armor of God. You might have sharpened your weapon, but you don't stand a chance in the battle if you haven't prepared. And the preparation is spending time in prayer. Remember, Jesus is our example. This same Jesus who anguished in prayer in the garden, Luke writes it, he was in agony. He prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I can't imagine praying with this kind of intensity. But as I studied for this sermon, I had to ask myself, how often do I neglect to pray at all? And then I wonder why my day is going so horrible. Or my week. Or the month. J.C. Ryle writes that the cause of many Christian weakness is to be found in their own stunted, dwarfish, clipped, contracted, hurried, narrow, diminutive prayers. They have not because they ask not. So my question today is, do you pray? When's the last time you spent quality time in prayer? As I was looking through Scripture this, this week and I have a lot of uh, quotes through the years of sermons. It's a lot from Casey and Blake. But uh, one of the quotes that I have is from Mike Samuels, and I don't know if, he's, if, if he got it from somewhere else or if he, if he came up with this himself, but it's so great. I'm going to give him credit. Prayerlessness is idolatry. We trade the intimate time of communion with God for something else. Think about that again. Let me, let me say that again. Prayerlessness is idolatry. We trade the intimate time of communion with God for something else. And I ask you this morning, as I have done, as I've studied this, to wrestle with this. To ask yourself, what are you trading for the intimate time of communion with God? To understand that as believers... We need to get alone with God and pray. Keep your 
pen and uh, finger in Matthew, turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is a, a parable that Jesus tells that gives us real clarity about our motivation to pray and the difference of how to pray, how not to pray. Starting in verse 9, he says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, when you truly desire to communion, commune with the Father in prayer, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand and make a spectacle of themselves. Their heart is revealed in how they pray. We must be careful of our intentions, whether we are in public or alone. Jesus says you should go into your room, shut the door, and you cry out to him. And you don't need to be wordy about it. See, the key to prayer is time alone with God, and that's good. Paul says we should be praying at all times. Or as he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And here's the beauty of prayer. Here's what the Word of God says happens when we pray. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.24-25 says this, But He, Christ, holds His priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And 1 John 2.1 says this, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As we pray, Jesus is interceding for us, advocating for us through his righteousness. And it's not just Jesus, it's, it's the Spirit as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so what does that look like for us? He goes on in verse 28. Says we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Prayer is the means by which we are transported to the throne of God by the Holy Spirit, where He in Christ, Jesus, intercedes and advocates for us. What a blessing it is to pray. And yet, how many of us squander that blessing? It's changing it for momentary happiness. And I confess that I, I'm just as bad as anyone else, if not worse here. I've been preaching this to myself for the last two weeks. I want you to see one more thing. Go back to our main text. What is the result of the prayer of the hypocrites? No reward from the Father. They have their reward. And it's absolutely useless. But look at the end of verse 6. Pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't that a great promise? That our Father who sees in secret will reward us? Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. And Psalm 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Prayer is powerful. It is for our benefit and it's for God's glory. That's what prayer is. It's not about how we look and, and how we sound to those around us. It's about what our heart says about who Christ is. J.C. Ryle says to be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. And I'll ask you again, do you pray? And if you do, is it for God's glory or for your own? My hope this morning is that you are convicted of your motivation. I know I was as I studied this passage and convicted not only for your lack of prayer or your motivation of why you pray. We all have reasons why we pray. We all have different circumstances that drive us to our knees in prayer. I'm not saying that all of those things are wrong. But what is our true motivation? Is it to please God? Is, to, is it to have God change our circumstances or to change us? to change our hearts, to change our minds. So I'm not talking about just convicted for your lack of prayer or motivation, but convicted of your sin in totality. See, it's in these alone times with God that, we can, that He can show us our weakness, reveal to us where we have fallen short, and gives us the opportunity to repent Romans 10, 9 through 11 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
He goes on in verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pray that you are convicted of your sin this morning. And if you have never called on the name of Jesus, that this morning would be the day that you do that. And if you do that with a pure heart and truly seeking God, He promises that you will not be put to shame and you will be saved. But I also pray this morning that you are encouraged by this message. I know it's been a really good study for me to look at prayer through the lens of Jesus. To know if done with the proper intent that your great God will reward us. Again, I'll ask you, do you pray? What is your motivation for prayer? Is it to be seen by others or to be seen by God? Is it to change circumstances or to change you? To change your heart? I'll leave you with this thought from Leonard Ravenhill. He says, no man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fell everywhere. Father, as we have looked into your word and what you have said about the attitude of our heart in prayer, we we ask that you would prick our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Convict us of where we have gone astray. Where we have been players, imposters, maybe even blasphemers in how we approach your throne. God, convict us of our sins. Teach us. Teach us that we need you every hour, every day. That we can't face our days, we can't face our work, our school, anything until we have our alone time with you. It's in the preparation of prayer that we are prepared for the battle. And the battle is fierce. We live in a culture that is consistently raging against your word and your truth. So Lord, we need you. Because your words are the words of eternal life. Without that, where else are we going to go? Lord, I pray this morning that those who hear this message will, will be convicted of their sin, will be convicted to pray more, not just spend time and, and, and rattle off 
long-winded invocations. Father, really get alone with you and pray. And that you would conform us more and more to the likeness of your Son. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.